Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Hello, welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm your host, Mark Yacono. I'm a managing director with Major Lindsay in Africa's Transform Advisory Services practice. Um, throughout our time here, at MLA in this podcast, we've attempted to bring to you a really good cross-section of clinicians, professionals, authors, mental health warriors. And today we have a very special guest, Madeline Claire Weiss. She's a licensed social worker. She has a master's in business administration. She's a board certified executive career coach, um, a life coach, a blogger, a podcast guest, obviously, because she's guesting with me. And she's the co-author of the Handbook of Stressful Transition Across the Lifespan, which was written for the National Psychologist. And she has a terrific new book coming out called Getting to Great, and that's G period, R period, E period, A period, T period, five-step strategy for work and life. It's, um, it's based on science and stories of real people, including her own stories. And we're gonna, we're gonna cover that and, and other things today. Madeline, welcome. Thank you, Mark. It's really a privilege and a pleasure to be here. I wanna thank you for having me here. And I also wanna thank you for um, doing this for our lawyers. Well, it, it is for me, obviously, uh, a pure passion project and something I care deeply about. Madeline, tell us a little bit about your career and how it led to you having an interest in lawyer well-being, because you have an extraordinarily um, broad background and unique training. And, you know, I think it's always important for our audience to know our, our guest journey. Well, Actually, my career started in a laboratory. So I, became, I studied at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate Hospital School of Medical Technology and was working with uh, blood and urine and bugs, went on to work at the USDA Biological Control Lab and Drexel University's Cardiac um, Catheter Lab. And there was always this pull for reasons I'll, we'll probably get to um, toward the people. So I became a social worker, a clinical social worker to be able to help people to grow and develop and be happy. Um, and then managed care came on the scene and we had to deal with the business aspects of that and didn't know anything about that. And I found myself running a uh, 200 client mental health practice without any experience or expertise to do so, except my mother did the books for my father's business or something like that. So anyway, I went to business school and learned a lot more about people and organizations there than I ever, ever expected to. I but we imagine when people go to business school, they're learning how to crunch numbers and do all types of analysis. And you're saying what you pulled out of business school was 
more insights about how people function. Some of the best learning about behavioral dynamics came from a course I took at business school, which, which was actually a repeat of a course that I took in social work school. There were things, there were micro things like noticing who sits where in this meeting and then who sits where in the following meeting, kinds of really microscopic ways of seeing what makes people tick and what gets in the way. How I become interested in lawyers per se is the article that I told you about that Patrick Schlitz 1999 article was uh, my first exposure to what a demanding and challenging uh, profession the law profession really was. And he talked about these alarming rates of depression, anxiety, stress, substance abuse, divorce. So Were you surprised that that, that was a, a pretty prominent publication in 1996? And it wasn't until 2016 when the ABA partnered with Betty Ford Hazelton or Hazelton Betty Ford. Yeah. And came out with an enormously comprehensive survey. Right. That, that research really got updated. It, 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 and when it presented in 96, it was a systemic problem. And what 2016 showed is it was an even bigger systemic problem. Are you surprised there was such a gap between the initial study and the intention that it, mental health and the legal profession is getting now? People don't typically feel sorry for lawyers, right? No, not really. So that's not where the empathy would typically easily go. But I, I have a big heart for lawyers. I mentioned to you that, um, so my son is a lawyer, my brother is a lawyer, my son-in-law is a lawyer, my daughter-in-law is a senior paralegal. I live in DC where everybody I know just about is a lawyer and I have a big, big heart for lawyers. So I do have empathy. I can tell you um, when we get to that, a couple of clients that I'm presently working with and what a what a pleasure it is to help them find their footing in that alignment that you and I talk about, where who people are as a lawyer fits well enough with the environment they choose to practice their craft in so that they can have happier, healthier, productive lives. Are you surprised that the profession itself didn't focus on this? We know that externally, there's not a lot of empathy for lawyers, or at least that's a stereotype. But are you surprised that the profession itself didn't start addressing these problems sooner than they did? So where my mind is going is, in all fairness to them, how many professions were paying a lot of attention to the mental health of their workers? Fair that's a fair point. And it's something you would see in your vantage point. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So now 
we hear so much about the concern for the mental health of everybody, but it often takes a crisis, I, I guess, of this proportion. And then again, I wonder, I wonder if it's a shift or focus that will even last when people start going back to their routines. Well, you know, in, in fairness, this, this focus on lawyers' mental health started well before the pandemic when American law media decided to start its year-long campaign called Mind Over Matter. And um, Gina Passarella, who's the editor-in-chief of ALM, yeah. really took notice when um, the wife of a lawyer at a very prominent firm had taken his own life. And she wrote a very passionate letter called Big Law Killed My Husband. And so from the Mind Over Matter initiative in 2019, you know, there's a lot of momentum that has continued to grow. So one thing I feel comfortable saying is that I think the profession is woke. Um, Good, yeah. And, and I think that um, is ripe for education where I think that there is a tremendous amount of room for perspective is on causation and on giving people practical skills that they're gonna need now more than ever to figure out how to understand what they're feeling and how to express themselves in ways that allow them to not suppress what they're feeling. To, to, yeah, I don't want to overuse the phrase be your best self, but to be your most authentic self so that you can begin to recognize how you truly feel before so, it metastasizes. You and I were talking about um, coaching before, and it, that is like, I think um, coaching is one of the fastest growing industries. And it, it, there's, some, there's something about it that's a little off the chart. However, I don't know whether you saw the Atul Gawande, who's a surgeon. Yep, I've read his books. Yeah, who said everybody should have a coach. And you and I were talking about scaffolding. So would it help? Well, of course, I'm asking this is kind of a loaded question because I think it would help. Would it help if every young attorney or or any attorney um, had a someone who provided that kind of scaffolding for them. You were talking about to be able to hear their own voice, to not have to um, detach from oneself, because I think that that detachment from the self, I think is what causes all these mental health issues. So if there is a safe environment for the voice where you have a witness, where you're not alone, um, wouldn't that help? And wouldn't that, that be enough to do? That certainly would help. And, and certainly there are some great firms out there. Um, I've had Diane Costigan on from Winston and Strawn and Robin Ballou on from Kirkland and Ellis. And I know other firms like Aiken Gump are doing some superb work in providing that kind of support and scaffolding. But the reality is, is that there are 
a tremendous swath of lawyers that aren't at big law firms that don't have firms that can invest the resources into okay. building those structures. I think what some of the big law firms have done is make significant commitments and have doubled down on those commitments in these, these pandemic times. But there's also that wide belly of lawyers in the middle who aren't with big firms where they're solo practitioners or they're with mid-sized firms where the firms simply don't have the resources to provide that scaffolding. So these people absolutely can definitely learn how to master their own minds in a way that brings them what I like to call billable energy. That this being completely out of alignment is such an energy drain. So when people can quiet the inside and begin to hear their own voice and begin to be guided more by it. I wanna give you a case example. I think that would be helpful. So there's a woman who's a lawyer. Actually, I have a few examples for you, but she's a lawyer and she came to me as miserable as miserable could possibly be. And this has such a nice ending. So what she realized was that the thing that meant more to her than anything in the world was her family. And she was so split off, not only from her family because she was so consumed by her work, but she was split off from herself and what meant the most in the world to her. Now, some people might've been thinking that they had to leave this job, get a different kind of job or leave the profession, get a different kind of profession. She didn't have to do that. What she did was she started spinning ideas about things that would be really fun for her. Now you would think she wouldn't have an extra minute in the day, given what a hardworking attorney she was. But when she started dreaming about all these fun things that she could be doing some at some point in her life, she had all this newfound, again, what I like to call billable energy. And she built, she started, she went through all the um, legal steps to set up a business that she and her son and her husband were gonna run together. And all of a sudden she started liking her job. So you would have thought she wouldn't have had an ounce of energy. And then she came to me completely depleted in three months. She, she signed on for two months and then she said she wanted to keep going an extra month. In three months, she left loving her job because she appreciated how much her, her primary job nourished her family because she was the primary breadwinner. So she loved her job and she had a side hustle that was so much fun for her and a smile on her face. And she said to me that what meant the most to her was that she's never, she's not afraid anymore 
of ever feeling that down again, because now she has a toolkit. She knows what to do. So what, what's her toolkit? So I taught her exercises for managing her mind. And she learned what was really important to her. So when she got out of alignment, she could recenter herself and say, this is what matters most of all to me. And more important than anything, she learned that if you stop yourself in this very moment, everybody in this very moment, everything is fine. You'll figure the rest out. But when you take your mind out of the past regrets and the worries about the future, and that's all the stuff that makes us feel really bad, and you, you anchor right in this present moment, isn't everything just fine? Yeah, I think most of the time you come to that conclusion. If you can stop time. If you if you have those glasses on, if you see through that lens, everything is just fine. If it doesn't feel just fine, it's because you're thinking about something that already happened, or you're worrying about something that's going to happen. That if you if you're right in this very moment, not outside of this moment, everything is just fine, and it's a wonderful place to begin again from and begin again from and begin again from every time. So I have this thing that I think, I think the most important thing is what I call this 30 second mindset reset, which is polyvagal breathing. It's 30 seconds and anyone can do it anywhere, anytime, and no one even knows you're doing it. And what that does is it kicks whatever the issue is out of your emotional, potentially agitated brain center upstairs to your executive brain. And once, and once we've got the executive brain back online, because that, that gets knocked offline when we get agitated. So once we bring that back online with this breathing exercise, the question becomes, is there something to be done here? And all of my clients learn this. So is there something to be done here? Sometimes the question is, well, yeah, but I already did it. In which case you might wanna take a few more breaths before you move on to your next activity. Sometimes the question is yes, but not by me, in which case maybe there's someone else that you need to interface with. Sometimes the answer is yes, by me, but not now. So then the question becomes when, and sometimes the answer is no, there's nothing to be done here. And to be able to sit with Things like, I don't know, or there's nothing to be done here, I think is the most powerful thing we can do to put ourselves in better footing in our lives. Is that because it slows down the speculation that's going in your mind that keeps you from 
realizing that everything's okay. Yeah, and, and sometimes feedback loop. Yes, and sometimes also along with that, when you're in reaction mode instead of response mode, uh, sometimes we do things that creates like other problems. Sometimes by by needing to exercise our agency in a vacuum, uh, we make a mess. Yeah, that that we then have to deal with. So Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, you probably know this, said uh, in between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our choice. And in our choice is our freedom and our growth. And the idea is there's not anything we can do about a lot of the stuff that comes our way but no one can take away from us our freedom and how we do or don't respond to that. So the Buddha says, and these always come to mind for me together, that there are two arrows. The first arrow is the pandemic where someone lost their job or business is down. The first arrow is the thing that happens and that's pain. So we feel the pain of that. And then he said, the second arrow is what the mind makes of the pain. And what the mind does is what he says is the suffering. And that can go on all day, all week, all month, all year, or for someone's whole entire life. And that, and that is the suffering is created by the mind and that's what I like to get in front of with my clients. Okay, so taking your examples, something happens and it may have negative effects. The mind reacts and how long the anguish related to those negative effects last is really a function of how long your mind lets it last. If I am appropriately rephrasing and trying to understand what you just said. The only thing I would have said a little differently there is how long the mind lets it last. The real question is who's in charge here? So like who's the master and who's the slave? The idea is for us to become in charge of the mind rather than the other way around. There are these habits of responding. So we get triggered and we have a habitual way of responding that was probably put there by the wonderful little five-year-old we used to be who figured out in the schoolyard how to respond when this kind of thing happens. But that's a five-year-old and we don't really want a five-year-old in charge of our lives. They get stronger and stronger and stronger. And there's not a whole lot, like you can't surgically remove them, but what you can do is build a new garden. So you start doing things a little bit differently, like not changes so big that they overwhelm you and shut you down and not so small that they make no difference at all, but you start trying just to do things a little bit differently. So, yeah. So you have a profession that's deadline driven, that's subject to the belief that the work has to be perfect. 
that you always have to be tough, um, that billable hours is one of the biggest characteristics by which you're measured by mm -hmm. for both compensation and commitment to the profession. And it appears, at least to many, that that is an overwhelming amount of expectation and stimulus and um, direction from, from others, well, other things in your own mind. How does your strategies and your thinking correlate into actionable ways that they can begin to sort through that? So I've heard from lawyers that some people really groove on that. Some people really like the action orientation, competitiveness. It's like being on the soccer field, you know. So some people are the right kind of animal for that. And other people aren't. And the ones who aren't can, you know, there's lots of different modes of expression for people with law degrees that um, really empower them to do wonderful things in the world outside of the billable hours setting. For the ones who choose to stay there for whatever reason they want to stay there, then I would be working with that person on their own tormenting inter inner critic. So a lot of people have a very harsh inner voice. It's one thing to have like a gold standard or the ideal that you're shooting for, this perfection that you're talking about, um, but how we respond, not react, what we don't turn on ourselves when things, so there's something I call, and I think I made this up, the misery gap, which is the gap between the way things are and the way we think things should be. And the bigger that gap is, the bigger the space within which we create all the misery of our own lives. So two things. One, we either find a place for where we can live our lives, where the expe expectations are not so far away from who we are, or we can refine who we are. But when we're talking about mental health, we absolutely need to know the difference between um, perfection and humanity. And it's our own inner voice, I think, that's impacting the mental health if we choose to stay in a situation that's triggering us over and over again. Okay, so I heard a lot in the, 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 your, 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 your past comments. There are some people who thrive. Yeah. In, the, in with everything, you take everything that's considered to be hard in the legal profession, there's some people who absolutely thrive. Right. They're almost like um, boxers or athletes who thrive in competition and thrive in the, the nature of the rigor. And, and, and those people tend to be okay with their environment. Then there are people who don't thrive in that environment. And this is where I'm 
want to make sure I heard you. For some of those people, the decision is really to find something else to do that better sits, suits who they are. Was that fair? Yeah, so the first step in the work that I do with people is really grounding in that belief. It doesn't have to hurt like this. It doesn't. So there are things that can be tweaked in the external environment. There are things that can be tweaked in the internal environment and it absolutely can be better. We don't have to suffer. Okay. So the ways to alleviate that suffering can include a career change, but it could also include other methods of coping and framing your reaction to the circumstances that it would allow you to stay in the profession. Because what I'm afraid is that people might take away that it's kind of a linear choice. Either you love the rugby scrum and you want to stay or you have to leave. And, and I'm trying to figure out whether you're talking. I think that case example that I gave you really addresses your question. So she, she didn't leave. She had to leave the way she was experiencing and arranging her life. She had to leave that. But she didn't, she didn't have to leave the job. She may leave it someday if her business takes off, but she began to just view it completely differently. She was expecting, she had unrealistic expectations of her job. If you think of the relationship between this woman and her job, she expected too much from it and she wasn't appreciating that her job allowed her to live a really nice life with her family, to nourish them, to allow her to build her side hustle. And she began to think of it um, much more positively. So part of, the, part of the exercise was really for her to recontextualize her job. Thank you, beautiful. And to attach importance to it in different ways. Yeah. Now, not everybody could have done that. It's a really creative, individualistic process. It's very different for different people. But I'm just trying to, I guess, convey many things are possible. People feel so stuck. When they come to me, they are so stuck and so demoralized and can't even imagine that they could ever feel any better or anything could be any different. And then it's like, I always say to them, let's slow down this movie and look at it frame by frame by frame by frame. And where can we edit? You know? That's a great analogy, I think. Yeah. Breaking it down into frames. And then beginning to figure out where you can begin to edit here and there. Yeah, you could take a little out here, you can add something in there. And that's, that's what they're doing that's making them so happy. So my working kind of thesis of life is that people become happy when they hear their own voice. Okay. And when they are able to tell their story, that our ability to articulate our story 
is the way we, we truly come to understand ourselves. I'm going to read you a quote. This is Daniel Kahneman, the Pulitzer Prize winning yeah. Thinking Fast and Slow. He said, we all care intensely for the narrative of our own life and very much want it to be a good story with a decent hero. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Isn't that good? So here's, here's the thing. Michael Pollan wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma. He recently wrote a book, I think, How to Change Your Mind, that has a whole chapter of neuroscience in it. It's wonderful. And he really explains all the bits of data that come to the senses and how few of them human beings can actually absorb. So, we're got, so we have like little eensy teensy pieces of reality, nothing close to reality. And then we want it to have coherence. We want it to be meaningful. We want it to make sense so we don't feel crazy. And so we piece it together into a story. And the thing is that you have your story and I have my story and everyone else has their story. And I always think of it as bump, bumper cars. So everyone is trying to fit everyone else into their story about the way things should be without realizing that the other person has their own story about the way things should be because everybody has one. And so these egos, especially in law firms, these egos are colliding all over the place like bumper cars. And once in any organization, once, once we realize that we all very much want it to be a good story with a decent hero and that hero is me. And if everyone is feeling that way, it kind of in its ridiculousness, because we're kind of funny that way, it, it makes things make sense, bringing like a little bit of levity to it even. And you said earlier, and I couldn't agree more, we're, we're very quick to consider it malice, but that's a story too. Yeah. And it's not always malice. Sometimes it's people just trying to be a decent hero in their own yeah, story. story. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's all. Yeah. Um, a therapist once said to me, we envision people doing things to us when in reality we have our movie script and they have their movie script and we're not a motivator of their movie script. They're not doing it to us. They're just watching and writing their own movie. And um, that makes you realize that not everyone's out to get you. Not everyone is acting with the intent to make you miserable. It's not even about you. It's not about you at all. I have a, um, an exercise on my website. There are complimentary exercises. And one of them is called the movie room, where you get to see how you've produced and directed your own movie that you're trying to fit the whole world into. So. That's fun. To I think I think as as we as I summarize where we what we've covered today, um, reframing. Yep. Um, stepping back and slowing down to 
Um, in cognitive therapy, we'd say don't catastrophize. Mm -hmm. um, slowing down so you can understand that it's not a catastrophe and that you don't need to catastrophize. But if you stop time, you realize you're okay. And there may be things that result from re realizing that. You may do something, you may choose to do nothing. You may have someone else do something, but that, that sheer act of slowing down helps you decide that because it stops your mind from building these catastrophic consequence loops. And I would throw in there that the slowing down kicks it up to the higher brain. You do you not- You that the executive brain, right? I did. That's the one you want driving the bus. So the higher brain can say to the agitated lower brain, thank you for sharing. I got it from here. So there are stories about people who had the emotional part of the brain, the emotional brain center knocked out. There's a story about a doctor who couldn't get dressed in the morning because he had no sense of preference. So he didn't know which pants he preferred to put on. So I'm not knocking emotion at all, but emotion is data. It informs you, but it should not be driving the decision-making bus. So like any other data, it's gotta be sorted and called. Yeah, so yeah. thank you for sharing. I'll take care of it, says the higher brain to the agitated brain. So let's talk a little bit about your book before we, we say goodbye, because it's coming up soon. When's the publication date? March 10th. That's that's very soon. Yeah. Um, tell us tell us about the book and tell us what inspired you to write it. I have been I I don't know if I told you in this call or before the call that I was kind of a mouthy little kid. So yes, you did and you are still. <laughs> so I was grounded like a lot. And <laughs> I can't what, imagine. Thank you. <laughs> I'm actually, you know, you know that little children's book, Madeline? Yes. In an old house in Paris, all covered with vines. Da, 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 da. She's my avatar. <laughs> and she was also really mouthy. So anyway, I was grounded a lot. And what I did when I was grounded was I wrote books. And I sewed them up the middle with yarn, you know, like for the binding, and then I would color the front. So I've been I've been writing for like really, really long time. This particular book, I said to myself, within the past year, I said, what is it that's working for all these people? Because you mentioned, and it's true, I've been trained from a a variety of different schools of thought. I study philosophy, I'm a student of evolutionary psychology, and then all those programs I went through. So I have a very robust toolkit. It's not clear to me. I think the art and science of what I do is knowing which tool to pull out when. But I said to myself, okay, self, like what do you, what's actually working here? And what I realized that as different as all these people were one from the other in age and gender and occupation and whatever, what they all had in common was this five-step process, 
which just happened to fall into the acronym GREAT that I was just like, thank you. You know, the G is for grounding. So the G is for grounding. What's the R for? In the belief that it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to hurt like this. The R is obviously from our discussion, the recognizing who you are. You have to know who you are better than we sometimes do in order to arrange the environment that's appropriate and aligned with that. So the E, once you have a sense of what really matters to you is exploring options. And we have exercises that we can do where people vision um, different scenarios for themselves and see what brings the smile and what doesn't. And, um, and then the A is action. Once, once they get a sense of direction, you can't just sit there with your sense of direction. There needs to be um, some action. So the brain gets a little excited and motivated that something new is happening here. William James said, there, um, action does not guarantee happiness, but there's no happiness without action. And I think that's true. And then the T is for tackling the normal, natural, inherent, predictable, expectable resistance to change. So as I listen to that, it seems to me that they're all important, but for me personally, the E really resonates. Okay. That's where you give yourself the permission to reimagine. To dream. To dream. Like, I think sometimes because of how we grew up, how we went to school, we, we've operated on default for a large part of our lives often without really knowing it. But we've also um, assumed that there was only one way, one definition of success, one version of happiness. Right. Um, and it seems to me that when you get to the E, it's begin when you begin to realize that success could look many different ways, or there were lots of different ways to do what you like, and you were allowed to break out of that default mode. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, all the steps are very potent, but for me, just listening to the E really resonates because that's when you begin to expand your field of thinking. Well, actually, the E, I think you put your finger on it. It might be the most fun part of it. Yeah. Because when you start to take the action, that's right on the heels of that is when the resistance might come up also. But in the E phase, we're just dreaming. And I saw somebody who has some undiagnosed illness that no one can seem to figure out what it is. And it makes this person feel really uh, fatigued and lethargic. And we were doing our work anyway. And the person started talking about, I, I said, what would you be doing if money was not an issue? If you could do anything you wanted and it wasn't about money and it wasn't about what anyone needed of you or what anyone else said. And the person told me what it was. And all of a sudden 
I saw her energy change and I said, what just happened there? And she said, I don't know, as bad as I felt, I all of a sudden, I, I just felt better. And mm. so, and so talk about the mind body connection. And so the, yeah, the, the dreaming is really fun. Um, and I think part of what's fun about it is that it really surprises them. They say things they didn't even know. Like, yeah, to, to me, it's the excavation of who you are. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the exploration, but as you excavate, as you begin to dig away and dig through the default mechanisms, you begin to find who you are. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions I always ask at the end of a session so that the person knows you just answered. And the question is always, what value did you just give yourself today? And you said that it was in the exploration and then you added, it felt like an ex excavation to you where you chip away and find the treasure. And I think that is a perfect place to end. Um, please tell people where they're going to be able to buy your book. Okay, so I think the best way to proceed with that, the book will be sold on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all, all of those kinds of outlets. But if people go to my website, MadelaineWeiss.com, my social media links are there and people I think will be able to purchase the book and pre-order the book from there. If people get on the mailing list, by the way, the power breathing exercise is wonderful. It's that 30 second one and that's complimentary on the pull down. So if people go and grab that or the movie room or whatever, they'll be on the mailing list or you can just join the mailing list and I'll be making announcements about the book to people who are on the mailing list. Perfect. That is um, MadelineWeiss.com. Correct. Where and you have access to your complimentary exercises, information about the book, yeah. and I'm sure lots of other great information. Yeah, everything is there. Madeline, thanks so much for being on today. Thank you, um, Mark. You bring such a beautiful cross-section of training and thinking that I think this is a, been a really unique um, episode for our viewers, and I'm very grateful. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com. <laughs>